The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. For the next hour, Monterey College of Law's Dean Mitchell Winnick and law professor Stephen Wagner will discuss current legal events and public policy issues that are affecting our daily lives. They will not provide individual legal advice. If you have a specific legal problem, you're encouraged to contact a lawyer for legal assistance. If you do not have a lawyer, contact the local bar association or lawyer referral service in your community for recommendations. And now, here's Wagner and Winnick on the law. Greetings and welcome to another edition of Wagner and Winnick on the Law. I am San Luis Obispo College of Law professor and trial attorney. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, Dean and President of Monterey College of Law and San Luis Obispo College of Law, Mitchell Winnick. Mitch, good day to you and welcome back from the great state of Texas. Welcome back. I'm glad you had a safe trip. The eyes of Texas are upon you. I'll stop right there. There must be federal laws against me singing on the radio. You know, you missed out on a good session last week. I know. Well, I understand. Not only good session, it was Discretion Beer Day. It was Discretion Brewery. We had as a guest uh, Dustin Verriker, who uh, is a uh, chief brew ambassador at Discretion Brewing. I saw that. I like that. I always wanted to be an ambassador. I never thought about being a beer ambassador. Yeah, and he brought some samples. I, I thought that might have been what I missed. So I did an online, or we did an on... on I don't, uh, uh, wait, I'm not sure that you're allowed to drink while you're on the air so i don't think you should actually i cut you just well maybe you looked at those samples we just opened them we just opened there you go yeah Got it. Just wanted to make sure, just on and, on your own safety and behalf. And we discussed we discussed uh, the brewing industry and got an opportunity to talk about the laws connected to brewing, and it was a great session. Well, that's another one of those cases where I just don't think people understand how many industries are regulated by kind of niche laws that are very particular. They, you know, you say, hey, I'd like to get into that business. How cool would that be? I've been brewing beer in my basement. Yeah. Let's uh, open up a beer stand on the corner. That's right. But you got to comply with the laws. Absolutely. Well, it's true that it does often start in the garage and then it ripens into uh, a business where there's all kinds of scrutiny and rules imposed. And uh, that's the nature of the industry. Well, if people could see the studio today, they would obviously notice that we do not have a guest. That's true, they would. So we're going to let news headlines and topics drive the discussion today. That's right. And so, because we do this about once a month, there, we just, there's so many legal issues that line up in the headlines that, that we just sometimes have to stop and clear them out because taking them one at a time will never get there. And there have just been a bushel full of of issues that have come forward recently. That is true, and they often involve topics that we've taken on while we have had guests, and of course one of them, and let's lead with this one, uh, there's a free speech issue that we can talk about, and we can do it within the context of some events that happened at uh, UC Davis. Yeah, one of the California State 
universities. There's just an interesting thing that came into the news, and it, it raises questions that I, I was looking forward to talking with you about because what happened here was that UC Davis, back in 2011, <clears throat> some people may remember that they had an incident where a campus police officer used pepper spray to spray students who were having a protest. And it was a peaceful protest. They were sitting in a, an open area and they used pepper spray to attempt to get the students to disperse. And in this day of social media, of course, it was captured on uh, cell phones and video on cell phones. And so that made it a big story. So all of that went its own way, and the university settled those claims with the students, and the police officer was dealt with through administrative processes. So all, all, that's not what was interesting to me. But the Sacramento Bee, the newspaper, recently, using the Freedom of Information Act, asked the university for their records about a variety of things. And one of the things that came out was that the university paid to have a media consultant helped them scrub Google articles that were negative to the university, particularly on that issue. Right, so as to remove search engine, I think, what, buzzwords that would lead yes. people to that story or those stories? Right, and so I just, I read that article and I thought, now wait a minute, can the university, this is a state university, is it appropriate, then we could talk about is it legal, but is it appropriate for the university to take my tax dollars as a California citizen and use it in this manner? Yeah, so it was part of the university's public relations fund that I think a lot of, obviously, Cal universities would use. Sure. They would, they would have coffers to they be used. They do marketing. They do promotion. They, they, do all, they do public relations. That, that part of the budget's not that unusual. But the idea of engaging a private company for the purposes of actually potentially limiting some of the online dialogue or preventing internet users from getting to stories. Because my understanding is that the efforts by the outside agency, an independent company that I think is involved in reputation protection. That's that exactly right? right. That's that's the service they provide. And, right. and primarily that would be individuals, private companies who have some type of an incident and they want to control. And And sometimes it's because it was libelous or slanderous information that, that just has gone viral and they're just trying to limit it from going further. Right. So companies that are engaged in that business, they're not really novel. There's companies out no. there, that's PR type work. And that's it's, right. It's work that, uh, I mean, prior to the advent of the internet, certainly there were companies that were uh, wholly devoted to protecting images and we see it a lot in the political arena. It's not an uncommon industry at all. That's right. It is not nefarious in the least. What makes this one interesting, and I had talked to you about this, was the timing of this, because the event, the protest, I think, happened in, was it summer 2011. of 2011? Right. And then uh, the Sacramento Bee's public information request, which, by the way, is something that anybody can serve pursuant to the government code section uh, to get access to public records. That's right. Uh, they are, if they are public records, we are the public. That's right. So then in doing so, that... Uh, information was not released until 
Recently, fairly recently. Like it was last month. So it's back in the news, back and then the there's news. focus placed upon the, uh, is it the provost of the school? Or the That's right. Well, the, the, the chancellor's under siege for other reasons, and I believe the provost has stepped in as the interim chancellor. Okay. But it's not just this. There's some other issues. But, and we're not here to pick on, on the chancellor, but I just thought on this one issue, I, it just struck me, and I, and I was thinking about it, well, what would this be like in a pre-internet day? So I guess it would be similar to, would we think it's okay that the university, prior to the internet, knowing that a bad article was going to come out in the local newspaper? Yeah, well, we, you know, we, in doing that and engaging in that comparison, we have to turn the clock back to the old days of newspaper stands. That's right. Right, and recall right. the cases in law school where uh, somebody was accused of pulling, taking newspapers away. That's right. And so what if they went, would this be the same thing as them sending somebody out and even you know, even if they were paying for it, putting a quarter, or back then it was probably a nickel for everyone, putting the right amount of money in and buying up every single newspaper in the town so that the article would not get read. Right. So it's depriving access to information that people would otherwise have. Right. And now to think about it in the internet age and era, a general user who's doing an internet search pays for the service. To, right. u to use the online service, should have access to certain stories. So it just seems like it's a chilling effect on free speech. Yes. You think I'm going too far No, no, I, I think that's the topic we have to weave in. It is, after all, a legal talk show. Yeah, so I think it is uh, a chilling effect on free speech. But to kick it back to you of what you always focus in on, you know, there's intentionality here. Yeah, and, you know, we're not talking about it being a crime. We're just talking about the use of tax dollars. And, and so many of the issues we talk about of whether there's liability starts with a question of, did they intend to do something bad? Yeah. Right? And, and it sure s smells of a case where the university is intending to do something that is not in the public interest. And so, whereas that might not rise to a civil or criminal case, I think that as a tax-paying entity, shouldn't they be held to the standard of doing things in the public interest? I think that's true. And this, I don't think, is going to fall in that category. No, no, I would agree with you. So, it probably ends up being a public policy issue, not a legal issue. I, but think, I think that's true. And yeah. we're, not, we're not taking an assault on the industries that are engaged in reputation no, protection no, no, by no, any no. means. No, and, it, and there's many instances where that's a necessary thing because somebody who's anonymous, who might be... who publishing horrible things, this might be the only way a legitimate individual or company could combat it, is use one of these services to block those uh, messages. But in this case, we're just putting it out there. All right, Probably well, not a good idea for the university. That's true. Let's pick back up with a similar topic in, in social media and online defamation and the idea of defamation and what that cause of action entails. And there's a couple of things we can weave in under that category. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law on the BizTalk Radio Network and over Voice America. We're going out on a short break. We will be right back.
Deciding to go to law school brings up questions like, can I afford it? Will I be prepared to take the leap and open my own office when I graduate? I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true with professors who are practicing attorneys and judges. They mentor our graduates. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Creighton Mandeville says. I wasn't crippled in debt coming out of Monterey College of Law. I came out of it with no debt. I was able to do some working during that time and some savings, so I exited law school with no debt. I did feel prepared coming out of law school. I started helping friends with the issues that came up for them, and Monterey College of Law has so many great faculties and things that there were resources for me. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. For 45 years, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Monterey County have been a vital part of our community. The club's mission is to inspire and empower the youth of Monterey County to realize their full potential to become responsible, healthy, productive, and successful citizens. As just one of the club's programs, more than 12,000 children and families have enjoyed safe after-school care at the Boys and Girls Club's Salinas Clubhouse. Boys and Girls Club of Monterey County is very excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. For more information about this exciting opportunity, contact President and CEO Donna Ferrero at dferrero at bgmc.org or call 831-757-4412. Beginning with the Continental Congress in 1774, America's national legislative bodies have kept records of their proceedings. Did you know that these records are available to you online for free? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Congress.gov is the official website for the U.S. House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. It is published by the Library of Congress and includes the public records of the U.S. Congress, the Government Publishing Office, and the Congressional Budget Office. Remember, members of Congress work for us, and if you want to see what they're doing, go to congress.gov and watch the actual sessions of Congress, or look up any law that's being proposed. That's congress.gov, C-O-N-G-R-E-S-S dot gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or just thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. The San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School, founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings, and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admission Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org.
Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you're just joining us, Mitch and I are tracking headlines and talking about the law without a guest. We're going guestless. We are the guests. We are the guests. That's right. (laughs) All right. Okay, so wait a minute. You wanted to correct me on something that I I alluded to the fact that it might have been illegal uh, related to the the relationship you had with beer on last yeah, week's you show. Did, yeah, you did say that. So there is no FCC rule that prohibits the drinking of alcohol on air, so long as neither guest or host are uh, avoiding inebriation. Okay. And for the as long record, as they are avoiding in, or they inebriation. They are avoiding so as long as you're not... Obviously intoxicated on air, that you're is, not violating that is an FCC correct. rule. Now, okay. now, the next step is whether I ask for a public apology from you, which I think I can pass on because you know that we only drank about a thimble or two. Of, I'm sure of that's all. I'm sure that yeah. was the case. You were merely sampling it. This is true. Not drinking it. That's absolutely true. Fair enough. I feel, I feel that we're safe and we're not going to be yanked off the air. So I don't soon. need to ask for a formal retraction? I don't think so. Okay, you have defamed me? Well, let's talk about defamation okay, on, the, on the airways. So that's, that's our way of segueing into defamation. <laughs> All right. So uh, what do we got, Mitch? A couple of issues were coming up within the context of defamation, and we wanted to talk a little bit about online defamation, defamation and I think it gives us a chance to talk a little bit about Prince's uh, death. Yeah, I mean, there was this really unusual article this past week in where Arsenio Hall has said that he's going to sue uh, sue Sinead O'Connor. So these are two uh, people in the public eye, certainly they're entertainers, and because allegedly Sinead O'Connor made comments on her Facebook page about Arsenio Hall allegedly providing drugs to Prince. That's right. And so he's suing her under... Uh, a claim of defamation. And so defamation usually is in slander and libel. And one of them is if you defame somebody verbally. And the other is if you put it in writing. Right. And in Facebook, first of all, the question is, does Facebook trigger the type of writing that would be libelous? And the courts are clear. It can. Yes, absolutely. Not always, so electronic forms, or ri- the, the term written is defined rather, rather liberally, broadly. And it would certainly include an internet post and something that would be included in social media postings, tweets, uh, Facebook postings, and the like. Right. One of the challenges with some of these are that they're anonymous. So if you're posting under uh, a handle or a, a nickname, which would be common in many cases, particularly in the comments area, uh, then it's hard to track back of who that is. That's right. So one of the questions under defamation and Internet is, well, can you sue the Internet provider to make them give you those records or for failure to stop you from being defamed? And the cases are a little split, but they have generally fallen on the case of no, that it is not the Internet provider's responsibility. Yeah, there's a spate of cases that have handled that issue, and those are the so-called forum or platform providers. And it has routinely been held that they don't reach the level of having the mental state that would uh, rise to the level of being uh, complicit complicit right. in, in defamatory communication. That's right. So you can't sue your internet provider because they allowed a person to put defamatory language up on a, a website or a posting in a, on Facebook or Twitter. That's so right. That, that part's pretty clear. But the other question is, well, 
can, can uh, is it possible for Arsenio Hall to have been defamed, to be libeled by a Facebook post that we know in in this case appears to we appear to know who posted it? Yeah. I actually went to look at the post and it's been taken down. So yeah, interesting. So <clears throat> so let's break it down. So thus far, what we know about it is, and and as with all uh, libelous uh, forms of defamation, and this would qualify as libel, if anything, because right. it is in written form. It has an indelible aspect because it did go out on on Facebook and it reached people who may know and understand the meaning of the defamatory statement. So, Yeah, and, and it's important to know you said reached people, but the, the law is pretty simple. She only needs needed to have reached one person. One-third person. One-third, yeah. yeah Someone not, a, other, not a third of a person, but that's a true. third yeah, person. A third person, <laughs> the, the, the non-target or the right. non-recipient is typically how the cases are, are analyzed. And then the action always centers upon content. All right, so uh, is it defamatory in nature? And if you look at this posting, it uh, reads as though the statement released by Sinead O'Connor uh, implicates Arsenio Hall as the drug supplier. I think the statement was you need only two words, and then she mentions Arsenio Hall as right. the provider, right? Isn't that the spirit of That's the communication? That's the spirit of the communication. And so, so it... I, you know, obviously, we don't know the detailed facts. We haven't read all of the postings. We, but and I haven't even read the full lawsuit. But on the face of it, just to talk about the question, not in this lawsuit, but can you libel somebody on your Facebook? Post, the answer is yes. Yeah, you can. And then the other issue that comes up here, if this case ever gets any traction, meaning that it isn't dismissed early on procedurally, I think uh, she uh, or he filed rather in Los Angeles County so we can track what happens with the case. Obviously, there'll be some procedural challenges to it, motions to dismiss, demurs, attacks to challenge the nature of the pleadings. But what is also interesting is Arsenio Hall's status as a public figure. Right. And that goes back to what we probably remember in law school as New York Times malice requirement, meaning that uh, a public figure has a higher burden when claiming that they have actually been defamed. That's right. And these are, these are difficult cases to make because, for one case, it, it, sometimes it comes down to truth is a defense. But the burden would be on, in this case, someone on you know the senate, the, the talkers, the speakers, the writers' side to prove that what they said was true. It's not on the defendant. It's not on the plaintiff yeah. to prove that it isn't true. They have to, as a defense, say no, this is true. The other defense is, and this is where it gets really interesting, at least for we lawyers. Uh, opinion is okay. So, so you. You can't be sued for defamation on an opinion. It's that you, you have to be at the level that you're presenting it in the framework of being a fact. And the fact has to indeed have the risk of being injurious or damaging to the person, their business or profession. And so there are some somewhat subtle steps you have to take to prove up a, a defamation Yeah, that's case. true. And that's a very common point of contention, the so-called uh, claim that an accusation was actually spun or cast in the form of an opinion. In and other words, you can't use the opinion defense 
if really the spirit of the volley or the communication is pure rank accusations. That's right. So it, it you, you can imagine this comes up in letters to the editor all the oh, yeah. time. Oh yeah, absolutely. Because and, you, know, you can say, well, I, you know, I, I, I saw them. I saw them, and it's, in my opinion, it looked to me like they were drunk in public. Yeah, absolutely right. And then, of course, the other issue here is that uh, there is an accusation that Arsenio Hall allegedly committed a crime to That's wit right. supplying Drugs. narcotics. We'll be right back after this break. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law on the BizTalk Radio Network and over Voice America. And we are without a guest today, but not without fodder for topics. We are talking about news stories that implicate the law and we'll continue when we come back after this break. Applying to Monterey College of Law is not hard and we have a financial plan and class schedule that is tailored to meet your needs. I'm Wendy Laubrevere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true without crippling you with debt on graduation day. I chose Monterey College of Law because I wanted to continue working during the day. I had children at home and I wanted to be able to go to school at night where it wouldn't impact what my children needed from me. There really is not crippling debt that you face afterwards. Monterey College of Law has a payment plan which is manageable and they work with you. The other huge benefit of Monterey College of Law is that the professors are judges and lawyers. By taking their classes, you really actually start networking. So I was very fortunate because I also ended up with a mentor. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. For decades, the students at Monterey College of Law have graduated and gone on to pass the bar and become successful attorneys. However, not everyone goes to Monterey College of Law to become an attorney. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. We also offer students our two-year Master of Legal Studies degree, which can enhance their chosen careers. I was working as a deputy coroner for San Mateo County as a death scene investigator, and I wanted a better idea of the legal issues that were involved in forensic investigations. Everything about Monterey College of Law was accommodating to the uh, course of study I was trying to find. I graduated from Monterey College of Law with no outstanding debt. I'm working as an investigator for the San Mateo County Private Defender's Office, performing indigent defense investigations. For more information, call us today at 582-4000. That's 582-4000. Or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. That's montereylaw.edu. If you are a small business owner, you're subject to many of the same laws and regulations that apply to large corporations. Where do you go for help? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. SBA.gov is the website published by the Small Business Administration. It provides a wealth of information for small business owners, including employment and labor law, intellectual property law, online business laws and regulations, environmental regulations, workplace safety, and foreign worker eligibility. Of course, SBA.gov is not a replacement for having your own business attorney, but it is a free resource that may help you realize when you need to consult an attorney. SBA.gov. 
Have you thought about a law degree? Did you know you can attend an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo? And you can begin classes in May or in August. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions of San Luis Obispo College of Law. San Luis Obispo College of Law is a branch of Monterey College of Law, an accredited law school established 44 years ago. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, we have convenient evening classes, Mondays through Thursdays from 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. We have a tuition rate guarantee program that freezes your tuition rate when you begin and protects you from annual tuition increases. We also have payment programs that allow you to make monthly payments or apply for private student loans. At San Luis Obispo College of Law, our faculty is composed of highly esteemed local lawyers and judges. If you've been thinking about a law degree, find out now if San Luis Obispo College of Law is your law school. Attend one of our information sessions and get answers to your questions. Or call me, Wendy Law Revere, at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org. That's S-L-O-Law.org. It is one thing to argue with your friends at the bar. But have you ever wondered what it would be like to argue in front of the United States Supreme Court? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. Oye.org, spelled O-Y-E-Z dot O-R-G, is a website published by the Free Law Project at Chicago Kent School of Law. You can go to Oye.org and listen to 60 years of actual oral arguments at the United States Supreme Court. Written summaries are provided for cases that go all the way back to 1789. Oye.org also provides biographical information on every United States Supreme Court justice and offers an online tour of the Supreme Court building. Go to Oye.org to see if you have what it takes to present a winning argument. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. If you're just joining us, we're tracking some news stories today, and we're uh, proceeding without a guest, or we're serving as our own guest, right, Mitch? I think that's right. I Is like that the better way to put it. Well, that's a good way to put it. I was thinking that we're serving as our own experts. How okay. about that? Because we always claim that we have expert guests that talk about the issues today. I like it. That's a good. It's us. High standard, <laughs> inspirational, lofty. I like it. Very good. Hey, so <laughs> we we talked a little bit about Prince. We did it in connection with. Uh, the Arsenio Hall and the Sinead O'Connor uh, allegations that Arsenio Hall may have been responsible for providing uh, drugs to Prince, and we'll see how that plays out in terms of any kind of a defamation case. But the other related issue here uh, is is passing away without a will, and whether or not that's... We'll see if that's true. Yes. And, and I think this is just a great opportunity to remind everyone, this is kind of our public service announcement, that you don't need to have a $200 million estate to, to know that it's critical in just about any jurisdiction where you live to have a basic will. Because if not, something like this, where you pass away unexpected at an age much younger than you would ever anticipated, and now you're just going to let strangers or the court divvy up your assets. Yeah, it goes into probate, and then there's all kinds of competing claims, and we will stay tuned to see what happens here, because I'm certain that copyright claims and all kinds of lawsuits might come out of this, people claiming that they might have a right 
an, uh, an intellectual property right, perhaps a tandem right to some of Prince's body of work. And my understanding is that it is uh, massive. I think it is massive. And so it just, for, for the lack of a few pieces of paper, which you could provide clarity as to what your intentions are, now the court which is not well-suited for divining your intentions before you died, is going to have to sort this out. And it costs. So even if, if you are a modest, have a modest estate, like most of us do, why would you give a chunk of it to the court and to lawyers that you don't know to divvy this up before the assets even get to the people you care about? Yeah. Makes no sense. It, it doesn't. Do a will. Yeah, it doesn't. So, Mitch, you had, you had identified a story that I think is, uh, is interesting and implicates a number of potential laws, many of them criminal, actually, and that's the safe haven laws. This was really an interesting story. I, I read this, and this was about a, a case in Indiana where a volunteer fire a fire person who had been abandoned as a as an infant designed and had built and installed what they called a, a baby box. And I thought, what the heck is that? But it was similar, I guess in my mind, I envisioned it like an incubator at a fire station, which if you were going to abandon a newborn infant, rather than leaving it on the doorstep, which evidently does happen frequently at fire stations, you would put the baby in this box, it was climate controlled, and it automatically dialed 911 so that they would know to come and rescue the baby. Yeah, I saw the story and I saw the description and read the description of the box. It also had motion detectors or sensors inside the box. That's right. No matter what happened, it triggered 911 and they could dispatch someone to check. And it was positioned, I think, right in front of a fire station. Yes. Correct? So they've put in two. But what, what I, I read that story and I thought, well, wait a minute. Is that okay? Is that legal? Can somebody just abandon an infant? I mean, we know there are laws on the books, right? Absolutely. And there are laws for child endangerment, child abandonment. I mean, they're... they're sure. So statutorily, there's all kinds of laws that could be implicated and, and usually uh, might, might actually implicate a parent or a guardian right. uh, for neglect improper care, physical, mental abuse of a child. So I looked it up. You know, I want people to know just there are times and I don't know the law. So what did we do? I looked it up. Lo and behold, something I never studied in law school. There are laws in all 50 states called safe haven laws. Right. So if all 50 states have some form of a safe haven law, which in essence is a law that protects parents, guardians, uh, from being prosecuted, I think, universally for child abandonment. What right. is unclear, and I think it's going to be different state by state, is whether or not that provides an exemption uh, or protection for other type of potential crimes. And one that comes to mind to me because I've prosecuted these cases would be child endangerment cases in connection with drug exposure. Right, so a baby being born as a heroin addict, right. for example. So California, for instance, has a penal code section Section 271.5, and it's embodied in the Health and Safety Code section that does provide this safe haven law. California, uh, you know, typically the the transfer of an infant, I think, needs to happen within 72 hours 
of the birth of the child, and it's typically a delivery to a hospital. So a hospital, police, it's, it's, again, as you said, different in different states, but uh, hospitals, police stations, fire stations are frequently included in the law as a place where you can convey or leave, uh, transfer, <laughs> seems like right, weird yeah, words, it, but, you know, give up your baby. Um, funny enough, before these laws became more universal, there were a couple states in which, excuse me a moment, I think I know what you're going to say. There were a couple states in which they didn't have an age limit on it. So we both have teenagers. Mine are a little older now. Yes. They're actually beyond their teens. <clears throat> there were days when I think we said things like, if you don't cut that out, we're going to go to the police station and drop you off. Yeah, it, it, would, it would be an upgrade from the parental timeout <laughs> protocol. Right. right? Uh, we're taking you to the police station and we're leaving you there if you okay. don't start behaving. Um, but in in fact, the, the the laws are limited to infants. You yeah. cannot go abandon your teenager at the police station. Right. Yeah. So I mean, this the Indiana uh, rule or or this uh, implementation of the the actual box or what they're calling the baby box, and it's touted as being an anonymous delivery. You know, I was talking to you about the idea of anonymity. It's kind of hard for me to believe that it would be truly anonymous. It's in front of a fire station. It's it's heavily monitored. I have to believe that whomever drops the child, the infant, off is probably going to be seen. That's exactly right. But what the rules in most states are that even if both parents were at the hospital and this baby is born and they want to, to, to turn the baby over to the hospital, they're allowed to do it. And the hospital under most of these laws are allowed to allow the are allowed to have the parents remain anonymous. That's true. And that's the key part. The wrinkle in all this which comes up is if one parent, and one can assume it's almost always going to be the mother, let's say the mother goes to the hospital, delivers the baby, and gives the baby up to the hospital and leaves, and the father had no knowledge of it. What are the father's rights? Because they haven't signed them off. The mother may have signed them off. Father may not even know that the baby had been born yet. And that does create some differences in case law across the country about the father being able to re reinsert their rights or reassert their rights. Um, but the, the interesting thing I've, I thought is that the, the legal methodology of coming to this was that what rights do the state have? And so when the parents give them up, even if they don't sign documents, let's say the baby's born in a hospital and then the parents just leave in the dead of night. They don't sign anything. They didn't give a forwarding address. They just leave. <clears throat> you can think, you know, the hospital goes, well, now what do we do? We... We don't have adoption papers. We don't have permissions or releases. We don't have any of the things that you would assume is necessary. What these safe haven laws do is they constructively give the state, because you know, eventually the government is going to come in and assert rights on behalf of the infant, it gives them the effective right of that child having been turned over for adoption. Right. And so they can put them out to foster. They can have them adopted. And so it, it cleans up the legal question of what can the state do. With these safe haven laws, they can step in and take care of the infant. Yeah, and the other question I would have has to do with the fiscal impact here and then liability shifting. What about liability on the part of the, the hospital? Well, it gives them the same, I guess, the same general liability of, well, I guess they're 
they must care for the infant, but they become, I guess, an agent of the state in that sense of having to contact the authorities. Uh, usually the laws define what the hospital or the government must do, particularly if, let's say, the baby is just dropped off and they don't know who it is. Do they have to do public notice? I mean, you've gone in the back of the newspapers and you see fictitious name statements and trustee sales. I mean, those are legal announcements that the law requires. Yeah, statutory <clears throat> options to place people on notice that cannot be served through conventional means or and traditional means. Some of the statutes have a similar requirement in these cases that if there wasn't paperwork filled out, the, the government or the hospital has to file these things in the public news. When we come back, let's move to Colorado, Mitch, and talk about the... Uh, the uh, system there to stop jailing people who cannot pay their fines. You're listening to Wagner and Winnick on the Law on the BizTalk Radio Network and over Voice America. We'll be right back after this short break. Don't go away. Making a change in career is a serious decision that affects both you and your family. You have many questions that need to be answered before you can make a commitment. I'm Wendy Law Revere, Dean of Admissions at Monterey College of Law. Have you ever dreamed of being a lawyer? We at Monterey College of Law can help make that dream come true. And it's affordable. But don't take it from me. Hear what recent graduate Dan Cullum says. Before I was entering law school, I was an airline pilot. After I retired, I decided that I would go to law school. Monterey College of Law was the avenue to fulfill that desire. I loved Monterey College of Law. It was small classes. The professors were very helpful, personal. You could talk to them. Tuition is not exorbitant at Monterey College of Law, which is the opposite of the way it is at other places. It's affordable. They have a, a program at Monterey College of Law that lets you pay as you go, so it's financially possible. There's never been a better time to become a lawyer. Call us today at 582-4000 or visit us online at montereylaw.edu. Long before Woody's cruised Beach Street, kids and teens have needed to know that they are important and that they belong. Since 1969, the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Cruz has provided a place where potential is released and great futures are forged. Help celebrate our 45th anniversary by emailing your club memories and pictures to celebrate 45 years at boysandgirlsclub.info or call 423-3138, extension 23. We are also excited to announce that Monterey College of Law is providing one full tuition law school scholarship each year to a former Boys and Girls Club participant. Contact Executive Director Bob Langseth at 423-3138, extension 21, or email bob at boysandgirlsclub.info to learn more about this exciting opportunity. Consumer scams, fraud, deceptive business practices. Where do you go for protection? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. FTC.gov is the website published by the Federal Trade Commission. As the nation's consumer protection agency, the FTC wants to know about businesses that cheat people out of money. If you've been the victim of consumer fraud, you should file a complaint at FTC.gov. Although the FTC's Bureau of Consumer Protection will not help you recover your individual damages, your complaint may initiate an investigation that results in companies or individuals being sued by the government for fraud, 
deceptive practices or unfair business practices. If you want more information about how to protect yourself as a consumer, go to the Bureau of Consumer Protection at ftc.gov. Are you ready to start law school now? If you've just graduated from college or are thinking of changing your career, now is the time to take that first step. Slow College of Law is accepting applications for May 2016. San Luis Obispo College of Law is an accredited branch of the Monterey College of Law School founded 43 years ago. You can get a law degree from an accredited law school right here in San Luis Obispo. Their highly esteemed faculty is comprised of local judges and lawyers. San Luis Obispo College of Law classes are held conveniently in the evenings and the campus is conveniently located in downtown San Luis Obispo. Let the professionals show you how to make becoming a lawyer a reality. Make today the first step in changing your life. Attend an information session and get answers to your questions. Call Dean of Admissions Wendy Law Revere at 805-439-4096. Visit slowlaw.org for more information. That's slowlaw.org. The U.S. Constitution has recently created national headlines in the debate about filling the vacancy created by the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. The president and certain members of Congress are at odds about what the Constitution requires when there's a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Who is right? And how can everyday citizens be informed enough to know the answer? This is Mitchell Winnick, co-host of Wagner and Winnick on the Law, with a reminder that there are times that you can take the law into your own hands. ConstitutionCenter.org is a website published by the National Constitution Center. The center was established by Congress to provide information about the United States Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. If you want information about the Constitution's history and what it means today, go to ConstitutionCenter.org and form your own opinion about the law. Welcome back to Wagner and Winnick on the Law. Mitch, you know, I really do feel the need to try to talk about drones again. Oh my gosh, Stephen, it's been weeks and you haven't talked about drones. Well, it was you that was always bringing them up. So, I know, I mean, they're, I know. they're not going away. And there is a story out of the UK. It's Heathrow Airport. And there was... Now, now what happened? Well, there was an incident. Okay. Where there was a potential drone strike. Of an airplane? No, yes, a British Airways uh, plane in a landing pattern may have actually struck a drone that was in the flight pattern during landing. Well, clearly that's one of the, the concerns that have been, have been stated. Um, so, so what happened? Here's I what's mean, interesting it, about yeah. it and the reason I'm bringing it up. Right. Okay, there's now debate as to whether or not it was actually a drone or not. Ah, could have been something else. Right. But why do you think there's a debate and they don't know if there was a drone or not? No physical evidence was found. Well, you've talked about that in criminal cases before. you got to have physical evidence in order to prove a case. Well, we previously <laughs> talked about it in connection with drones and the idea of being able to connect the drone to the operator. Right. So, number one, this does raise the question again of should there be... We've talked about national. Now we're talking about international identifying numbers. So, should every drone manufactured and sold anywhere in the world ha be required to have a, a common identifying yeah. number. So it wouldn't be that hard. So this was a mid-April incident, and my understanding is that there was a ban from uh, 
a ban on operating drones in a nearby park that I think was popular. So there's a park that's rather close to the flight pattern, which is obviously a problem anyway. Uh, but they can't confirm, they can't rule in or rule out that it was a drone. So it could be a bit of drone hysteria. Well, that's true. In fact, one of the theories is that it was a, get this, a paper bag. A paper bag. Yeah. Wow. So That was you know, one the, big the, paper bag. The pilot's, <laughs> the pilot's account was that we were struck by something, okay? And it led to a discussion about what would happen if a drone was right. uh, hit the engine. So the absence of feathers took away the bird claim. Yeah, there you go. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Striving for levity, as per always. I All right, that. but it does remind us that, the, you know, we've talked about the, the FAA in the United States is still, in my opinion acting very, very slowly in getting regulations out for the safety of, of commercial airlines. Yes, it's, it, yes, you're not supposed to operate on or near or around an airport, but the rest of the regulations are just, just painfully slow in coming out. So I would... I would agree with you. you. Know, this, and, and it's going to immediately go to the issue of we, we're going to need international agreements on this as well. Yeah. So what's going on in Colorado? I think you, you had identified a story on uh, individuals that don't pay fines. Can they be jailed? Can they be incarcerated? Yeah, this is a topic that's kind of near and dear to my heart, dealing with homelessness, and we've dealt with that on this show. It was actually early on when we talked about initiatives to end homelessness, but one of the concerns is that people get citations as homeless individuals, and it's vagrancy and loitering and camping without a permit and, and of a host of other things. And those fines can come with a, or those citations can come with a fine. Yeah, so we're talking about sites that don't lead typically to incarceration. They're right. so-called quality of life type uh, crimes. Right, and so, but inevitably the individuals you know, don't show up when they're supposed to, don't pay them. They can accumulate a number of these. And when eventually. you say don't show up, you mean don't show up to court. That's correct. Yes. Good right. point. So they, they don't get, come they to get, court. When you're issued a citation, you're ordered to come to court. You're either ordered to pay. You can turn it over just like any of us. Of course, I've never had a drive, driving no. citation. Never. But I'm told that if you turn it over, there are directions in which you can just choose to pay a fine rather than even going to court. That is right? true. So same thing on these citations. You could choose to pay a fine instead of going to court. But as you might guess, homeless individuals do not have the resources. So the question came up in Colorado Springs was that, was there a pattern of issuing these types of citations that accumulated to the level that the individual could then be served a warrant for their arrest because they failed to pay these a kind of a litany of citations, and then they were arrested and jailed. Well, historically, you know, we don't have paupers' prisons. That was what happened in Europe before most of so our... So-called debtors' war, prison. Yeah, we fled to America and created this country to, to get away from that type of activity. The question is, is have we gone back to that? So it's it's not an issue that's been settled at the national level yet. What, what's Colorado doing? So what they, Colorado if, did was they did have a court ruling, and the ACLU, actually it was a settlement, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, sued on behalf of the homeless and claimed that what, what they were doing in Colorado Springs, in this case, was the, the equivalent of a debtor's prison. And the case was settled in which... 
the city agreed to pay these individuals who had been jailed under what was claimed to be debtor's prison, not only, you know, they, they, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars. So here you have the first of what may be, in this case, a settlement of a case that brings this issue to the front. And I suspect this will be the first of many of these claims. And the aggrieved party pool, the ACLU's clients, so to speak, were all similarly situated in that they shared similar attributes to wit, what, indigency? Indigency and non-payment. So, so the, I'm glad you said that. So indigency. So that's an important term in this because generally the rule in court is, and this is the case in criminal as well as civil cases, if you come to the court and prove that you are indigent, which by definition is unable to pay. We see it a lot when uh, those accused of crimes seek eligibility for the public defender. That's right. And then let's say they're not successful in that defense and they are issued a fine and they're ordered to pay. In, court, in virtually every court, the judge has the responsibility if a person proves that they're indigent, to come up with some other method that they could settle it, most likely public service. And so they go out, they pick up trash, or they serve in some way. But the judge is not supposed to put them in jail because they can't pay. Ah, uh, okay. Looks like that's a wrap, Mitch. I'm going to turn it to you for our dismount. Well, as always, it's been a delight talking to you for this hour. This is a reminder that you can listen to an archive of today's program at wagnerandwinnick.com. You can also hear us on voiceamerica.com on the business channel. As we remind you every week, if you don't know the law, know a lawyer. a good idea. Each week, Wagner and Winnick on the Law helps you sort out the legal issues and questions in a forum with judges, lawyers, and policy experts answering your questions and discussing your personal rights within the legal system. Law School Dean Mitchell Winnick, along with law professor Stephen Wagner, will discuss the sometimes ever-changing laws and policies to keep you in the know. Listen every Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Business. If you don't know the law, know a lawyer. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.